A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Hurricane Michael has brutalized the Florida panhandle, and journalist Jamal Khashoggi disappeared after entering a Saudi consulate in Turkey. In the midst of these crises, the president is focused on campaigning. We discuss the news in his USA Today op-ed. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We hope some of you are joining us after hearing our conversation on Jen Hatmaker's For the Love podcast. We helped her process her interview with Beta O'Rourke, which was just a fantastic experience. And we hope a lot of you are coming on over to this podcast because you're ready for some more nuance. And that's what we're going to that's what we're going to show you today. We love Jen Hatmaker. It was Mm -hmm. such a pleasure, as always, to spend time with her. If you are new to Pantsy Politics, we're going to put in our show notes some episodes that we think are pretty representative of what we do here, and we hope that you'll check them out. Thank you so much for being here. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about Hurricane Michael, about the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and then after a quick break, we will come back to discuss the president's op-ed in USA Today. Hurricane Michael came out of nowhere. It worsened dramatically in a very brief amount of time. It's one of the worst tropical storms to ever hit the Florida panhandle with 
winds topping 155 miles per hour. The videos coming out of along the Florida coast are unbelievable to watch. I think so often, you know, they kind of lose steam and this one did the opposite. It gained steam and was so, so, so strong. There have been reports of two people that have been killed, a man and 11-year-old girl, both in their homes, but the officials are worried the number is likely to rise. Lots of power outages, lots of evacuation, an area of the country still recovering from Hurricane Florence you know, is impacted by this hurricane as well. This happening in the same week that I've been reading the IPCC report on climate change, it just underscores the urgency that I feel about how we, one, have got to invest in our infrastructure to be able to deal with worsening weather. And two, we cannot afford to not make pretty drastic changes to the way that we live if we want any hope of maintaining the kind of lifestyles to which we are accustomed. Here's a thing I thought about as I was thinking about climate change and watching the coverage of Hurricane Michael. So you know how about, mm, let's see, two or three decades ago, economists, you had Nobel Prize winning economists come out and basically event behavioral economics. And they said, hey, you know what? We've all been functioning under this idea that people make economic decisions as rational beings. And that's not true. We don't make decisions. We don't make rational decisions when it comes to money and economics. And so we really need to think through all these these behavioral processes we go through when taking in this information and making economic decisions. And I was talking to a friend and I said, when are we going to officially extrapolate that to politics? Like, when are we going to decide that we don't make rational decisions when it comes to voting sometimes and to politics. And I think climate change is such an excellent example. We have all these climate scientists saying, this is what we need to do. Well, it's probably too big of a political lift. So I guess we'll just watch the world fall apart and people get harmed by climate change. So I was just thinking, like, I think we need to acknowledge that some of our political processes play to our most irrational behavior and have a conversation about that. We need some political scientists out there doing the <laughs> doing the work. And I think you see a little bit of that, like with what's the matter with Kansas, and you see people voting against their their economic interests. But I think there's, you know, with a global world and a global economy and global climate change, the pro- the political processes we have set up right now just don't don't speak to that. We're not. Our brains aren't really well suited to take in that kind of information. And then make really great decisions. And I'm not, I don't know what the answer is. I just think so often I look at things like climate change and I think we don't make rational decisions when it comes to this. But I I think that we need to really acknowledge that and figure out maybe a better way to move forward. I think that happens in part because we don't recognize ourselves as political decision makers. Mm. I'm not sure that we think of voting as decision making on a political scale. I think that we tend to live in very passive ways. Things happen to us instead of we choose things. We talk about this a lot. We've, we're we're consumers. We consume things instead of participate. And so we consume candidates, right? Mm-hmm. And our votes are like supporting a brand instead of making a decision about the future of the country. And then as a result, 
our elected officials act like brands Mm -hmm. instead of acting like decision makers. Right. And what is so striking to me about Hurricane Michael and Hurricane Florence, everything that's happened in the past 18 months, Puerto Rico, Texas, we have been talking about climate change for most of my life as something that we want to do for our children and our children's children. But it's, it's here. This is not a problem that's generations off. It's here and now. And there isn't anybody else to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. It's us. This mm-hmm. is on us. And we can do this, as we talked about in our last episode, in ways that I think are ultimately really good for us in lots of ways. I don't think that this has to be gloom and doom. I think there are opportunities for innovation and for us to do some of the greatest things that human beings do. When human beings collectively rise to challenges, it it produces some of the best that we're capable of as a species. We just need to figure out that this is the time to do that. And I wonder how much in our political process will be driven by these states affected you know, Florida's a swing state. Florida's a really important state, and particularly federal politics. They've got several very important midterm elections coming up. And I wonder how long before this becomes just the driving issue for particularly this state, not just how they handle hurricanes, but how they're handling increased hurricanes from climate change. You know, I I hope that that I don't live in Florida, so I don't know sort of the on the ground feeling of that conversation. But I have to believe that it's shifting as hurricane seasons continue to get worse and worse. We've interviewed so many women running for national and local and state offices. And I'm always struck in those conversations by how those women candidates are talking about climate issues in such a granular way. You know, we just talked with Lindsay James and she talked about the the river in Iowa, you know, and and what those specific issues are. Jessica Morse talked about fires in California, where she is. And I think I always feel when I'm having those conversations with those candidates, like we have lifted ourselves into a different atmosphere mm-hmm. where we're actually just doing problem solving instead of doing politics. Right. And it's so easy. It's so easy to do. And I would love for us to do more of that. And I don't know what else needs to happen to force our hand. Other crisis world events this week or events with the potential to create global crisis. Uh, we need to talk about Jamal Khashoggi. There I am in my head. We need to talk about Jamal Khashoggi, who is a Washington Post contributor, formerly a newspaper editor in Saudi Arabia and an advisor to Saudi Arabia's former head of intelligence. This person is very well connected in Saudi Arabia, really understands the landscape, and was initially pretty supportive of the Saudi royal family, but for the past couple of years has been living in a self-imposed exile in the United States because he became terrified, he said, of the Saudi royal family after he expressed criticism of them. As I was reading all the reporting on this situation, um, over and over again, it was he was living in exile. He was critical of the Saudi government. But that doesn't really give a lot of detail to this man and why his disappearance is so important. So I looked up some of his writing and I wanted to share his words with you today. This is from a piece he wrote for the Washington Post in September of last year. This was after the crown prince Mohammed bin Sal- Salman had risen to power. And I'm sure a lot of us remember there was like reporting about how they swept up all these people and they were holding them in the hotel. And so he was being critical of this action. And he says, 
In recent months, Saudi Arabia has instituted several new and extreme policies from full-throated opposition of Islamists to encouraging citizens to name others to a government blacklist. This is a very painful process. Mohammed bin Salman is best served by encouraging constructive, diverse opinions from public figures such as Assam and other economists, clerics, intellectuals, and business people who have instead been swept up in these arrests. My friends and I living abroad feel helpless. We want our country to thrive and to see the 2030 vision realized. We are not opposed to our government and care deeply about Saudi Arabia. It is the only home we know or want, yet we are the enemy. It was painful for me several years ago when several friends were arrested. I said nothing. I didn't want to lose my job or my freedom. I worried about my family. I have made a different choice now. I have left my home, my family, and my job, and I am raising my voice. To do otherwise would betray those who... To do otherwise would betray those who languish in prison. I can speak when so many cannot. I want you to know that Saudi Arabia has not always been and is now. We Saudis deserve better. You know, I think when I was reading all this reporting that he was critical of the government, I expected some sort of full-throated opposition takedown of the royal family. It's not it. He's just (laughs) – that's not what he was doing or has ever done. It was so much very – You know, you need to allow people to speak. It needs to be an open government. We need to allow criticism. Like, I love this country. I support the royal family. I support the government. Like, it was just kind of eye-opening because the reporting of this is so intense. And it seems like there, you know, there's there's lots of reports of violence against him and in very gruesome ways. And so I just... I kind of was shocked by, when I read his actual words, how measured they were. So that's the backdrop of his criticism of the Saudi government. And if you haven't been following this story, just to level set a little bit, Khashoggi was in Istanbul, Turkey. He went into the Saudi consulate there in Turkey to finalize divorce paperwork so that he could marry his new fiance. She was waiting outside for him as he went in, and he never came out. Mm-hmm. And he's been missing since then. And Turkish authorities and Turkish media outlets are saying that Saudi Arabian government sent a team of people to come in and kill him. Yeah, there were 15. There was reported that there were 15. Um, and they, I think they released the name Saudis that came over right after he got there and left within 24 hours after he arrived. So it is, it's a little suspicious. It's a very difficult situation because the United States government has really complicated relationships with both Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And those are relationships we've talked about before. I just, because I'm a geography nerd, want to remind everyone that Saudi Arabia um, has 28.83 million people living in an area that's a little bit larger than Alaska. And our 9-11 series that we just completed talks a little bit about our relationship with Saudi Arabia. The crown prince, who I'm just going to refer to as MBS, uh, has a very close relationship with Jared Kushner. And the Trump administration has really been embracing MBS's brand as a reformer. He's allowed women to drive. He's allowed people to see more movies than they've been able to see in the past. But like so many alleged reformers in Middle Eastern countries before him, there have also been reports of widespread corruption and cracking down on opponents to his policies. And A few months after he was inaugurated, President Trump put Saudi Arabia at the top of his foreign policy agenda with a trip uh, in which he announced a joint strategic vision with Saudi Arabia. 
This encompassed $110 billion in American arms sales and other investments. It included a letter of intent from the U.S. to support Saudi Arabia's defense needs with ships, tanks, other vehicles, and THAAD missile defense systems. And also a reminder that we've been selling weapons to Saudi Arabia for a very long time. And we have been supporting Saudi Arabia and the atrocities that the Saudi government has committed in Yemen in connection with the civil war there. So there are lots of questions swirling about what's the United States going to do if Saudi Arabia has, as Turkey has alleged, killed a journalist who was living in the United States. So Bob Corker and Bob Menendez, the top Democrats on the uh, Foreign Relations Committee wrote to President Trump Wednesday of this week, triggering a federal law that would require him to consider possible sanctions on any foreign person involved in Khashoggi's disappearance. And Rand Paul has started sounding like Rand Paul again, the, Mm -hmm. the Rand Paul that we have respected and appreciated for a long time instead of the one who has been unpredictable, to say the least, over the past few weeks. And he has said, look, we have to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. If they have had any involvement, the president should immediately block arms sales. The administration is not going to do that. It has been too much of an economic boon to the United States to forge these relationships with Saudi Arabia. And the president has indicated that that's a hit he's not willing to take. It's early, but it doesn't look like he is going to punish Saudi Arabia harshly, no matter what the facts are here. I was reading reporting about this, and particularly with the arms sales. I mean, even during the Obama administration with the relationship with Saudi Arabia was strained. We had like $65 billion worth of arms sales to Saudi Arabia, um, which, again, Senator Paul was critical of even then. He's consistent on this, at least. Um, and, you know, I, there was a, a a foreign intelligence expert who basically said, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has never been based on shared values, and it's always been based on shared security interests. And I just, I don't know how far Saudi Arabia has to go before we decide that our values have to trump our security interests. I'm not sure, I'm not sure, especially with regards to their interventions in Yemen, which is a human rights catastrophe, um, if they could, or if we're always going to decide that the security interest is all that matters, which is sad to me. It's sad to me. And I think one of the most telling exchanges that has come out with regards to the entire Khashoggi situation is um, a reporter questioned the State Department press secretary who was basically making a point that we don't even have an ambassador in either Saudi Arabia or Turkey. We have a global, I don't know if it's a crisis, but it's certainly an issue, an incredibly sensitive situation. And we have neither, not only do we not have an ambassador in Saudi Arabia or Turkey, we don't even have a nomination. Apparently, we're all just supposed to depend on Jared Kushner, who Nikki Haley says is a secret genius. I'm skeptical. But you know, I think that that is this whole situation is a powder keg. I'm reading Bob Woodward's book right now, and the discussion of the decision to plan this trip to Saudi Arabia is fascinating. Because on the one hand, you had Kushner and a, a lower level person in sort of the State Department ranks really excited about this and believing that this was an opportunity. And and let me say, 
I think they're sincere in those beliefs. I, I think that they genuinely think they can turn the Middle East around through economic deal making. I think they believe we do these arms deals, everybody wins. Hooray, we're going to be safe and prosperous. Um, and then you had people like General Mattis saying, we're not ready for this. Mm-hmm. You guys don't know what you're getting into. And because of Kushner's push, it happened. And here we are a couple of years later, and MBS is not going to be Kushner's lapdog. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just not going to do that. And Lindsey Graham has talked about, and again, this is Lindsey Graham sounding like Lindsey Graham again, <laughs> instead of the Lindsey Graham that we've gotten over the past couple of weeks. He's been saying, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia is behind this, it shows an incredible level of contempt for the United mm-hmm. States. And that's right. And that's mm-hmm. dangerous. This is a really dangerous place to be. So we're going to continue to watch this. We'll continue to try to give you as much context and background about the countries involved here. We could spend an entire series on the United States relationship with Turkey. And so it's difficult to know what the facts are when the facts are coming from a government that we can't have incredible trust in um, and Saudi Arabia, which is – You know, an economic partner to us and a military partner and another place that we can't have incredible trust in. So this is this is a very important situation to watch and understand. We're going to take a quick break and come back to discuss the president's op ed in USA Today and what we think comes after what is a pretty incredible act by the president here. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. 
looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I don't understand where the line is. I get when you're a national newspaper and the president says, I would like to publish an editorial that it is important and probably obligatory to publish it. But like... When he is deliberately lying, or at least dramatically misrepresenting the truth, don't you get to say, like, well, no, this this part's not going to work. Like, the whole, like, Democrats want socialism like Venezuela. That seems inaccurate and not an appropriate thing for the president of the United States to publish an editorial in a national newspaper. Just saying. I think this would have been a good place for the use of footnotes or something mm-hmm. like that to just annotate the op-ed. But let me give you the too-long-didn't-read version if you haven't. So the highlights are and, – and these are – I'm not um, editorializing. This is what the president said. Democrats want to end Medicare for seniors. Democrats want to model the United States after Venezuela. Democrats want to abolish ICE, which means ending enforcement of our immigration laws. And here is kind of the summary. These are his words. Today's Democratic Party is for open borders socialism. This radical agenda would destroy American prosperity. Under its vision, costs will spiral out of control. Taxes will skyrocket and Democrats will seek to slash budgets for seniors, Medicare, Social Security and defense. Republicans believe that a Medicare program that was created for seniors and paid for by seniors their entire lives should always be protected and preserved. I am committed to resolutely defending Medicare and Social Security from the radical socialist plans of the Democrats. For the sake of our country, our prosperity, our seniors and all Americans, this is a fight we must win. What I think is amazing is how internally contradictory even those sentences are. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me that... The president is defending social safety net programs in the context of accusing the party that has historically wanted those social safety net programs of taking the United States in a socialist direction. It just doesn't make sense. And I think it shows that we're at a place now where we're not really trying to argue our points anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just trying we're to scare. We're not really this is just not about policy anymore. Yeah. This was just a, this was just be afraid. That's what I felt like reading it was just him barking, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. 
The healthcare section was a resurrection of Sarah Palin's Facebook post about death mm-hmm. panels from the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it really was. It talked about the government starting to ration healthcare, which again is is contradictory. So, I I do not support Medicaid for all. But if you are a vigorous defender of Medicare, which is a program wholly administered by the government now, I don't think it makes sense to then say if the government administers health care, you suddenly won't get it anymore or you will get it in ways that you don't like and that you have no control over. Those two things just I can't reconcile those points. But again, I don't think this is about intellectual coherence. Well, and it, it wasn't, again, even about coherence with reality. His whole He did a whole thing about how he was going to protect pre-existing conditions, which is false. They are actively trying to scale back the pre-existing protections through both executive order and they tried unsuccessfully legislatively, but they're not giving up. They're still trying to – they're backing a lawsuit right now that argues that Obamacare's protections for pre-existing conditions are illegal. So they're trying to undo them that way. So I, I, just the idea that, like, they know people like the pre-existing conditions protection. So they're speaking to it over, even though in reality they're trying to scale them back. The other thing I really – well, on, honestly, there was something in every sentence of this editorial that I thought, wait a second. That's not right. That's not true. <sighs> but – The idea that the abolition of ICE, one, is a major Democratic Party talking point, it's not. I think a lot of people on the Republican side wish that it were, but there there are voices advocating for that in the Democratic Party. I think there should be voices outside the Democratic Party advocating for that. Um, But the idea that if we don't have ICE anymore, we are no longer enforcing our immigration laws is just not true as well. Immigration laws are enforced by a variety of agencies and bodies throughout the United States. And so if you're looking at ICE and thinking, wow, we're spending a lot of money on a pretty unchecked force um, to some pretty bad results, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. That doesn't automatically mean that you don't believe in the enforcement of immigration laws. That's just not fair. But this but this isn't a fair editorial. And so lots of pieces are being written now about whether USA Today should have published this. And Sarah, I think you're right. I don't know how USA Today says no. I would have liked to see – and, you know, there are other pieces in USA Today, other opinion pieces saying the president doesn't know what he's talking about. I think it would have been more responsible to line by line – right there within the piece say, just hold on a second (laughs) here, because you can fact check this. This is not all just opinion. You can fact check whether insurance premiums are actually going up or down right now. And I I wish they would have done that. Well, and here's the thing. I wonder how long the scare tactic of they want to force you into a government plan, they want to take away your private insurance is going to work because I think I think it was Vox recently had a chart that was talking about why why it was like one chart oh here it is this chart explains why Americans are so angry about healthcare and it talks about that the size of our deductibles have skyrocketed and the the premiums are skyrocketing so I don't know I don't want I, again I'm not sure how long that talking point's going to work because I think there's so many Americans that are like you know what? 
I don't want to keep my private plan if you have a cheaper option because I cannot afford this. Like, so since 2008, general annual deductibles for covered workers have increased eight times as fast as wages. So they're up 202% since 2008. And look, I think that it is true that some of that is the effect of insurances, insurance companies reacting to the sort of increased requirements under Obamacare, although I think those requirements will pay off in the long term. But like, I just, again, you know, we're not, we talked about this on Jen's podcast, we're not huge fans of employer-based healthcare. So I don't generally, for a lot of different reasons, but like, I just, I don't know how long that, that sort of, they want to take away your private insurance is going to appeal because yeah, if it's cheaper, fine, take it away. I don't care. So as we talked about on, on Jen's show, I think the biggest problem and the reason that we're going to continue to see costs rising is the instability around all of this. Mm -hmm. I think a good idea in the Affordable Care Act, as we've talked about many times, I would not have voted to pass the Affordable Care Act. But I also think that the Affordable Care Act has so many ideas in it that you cannot rationally say that it's all good or all bad. Mm -hmm. And I think a good idea in it is what evolved out of Romney care and out of conservative think tanks, this idea of these private marketplaces where we increase consumerism and healthcare, we increase choices. But we've only kind of done that because we also have kept employers in the business of providing health care. And a lot of people, even when it would be cheaper to go onto the marketplaces that are part of the ACA, don't do it because they're afraid that those are going to go away, right, mm-hmm. because it's all going to be repealed, or because it's a hassle. It's really convenient to have your health insurance premium deducted from your paycheck as an employee. And there are tax reasons to make that happen. And it's just administratively easier to call your HR person when you have a problem with a prescription than to deal directly with an insurance company. We've kind of gotten comfortable. Those of us who have these options, for whom these options are available, which is not everybody, but for those of us where that's true, it's really convenient. And switching healthcare is a big deal and not something people want to do constantly. And so the instability around this entire system is driving up costs, is driving down the participation in the marketplaces that is needed to make them really successful. You need more healthy people in the marketplaces to make those plans work. And we're not allowing anything to be successful right now by continuing to keep it alive as a political issue. And I'm really at a place where I I look at everyone and kind of think, I don't hear any ideas. I just hear that we want to keep this alive as a political issue because both parties think it is a winning political issue for them. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, this was definitely not this editorial was not a policy discussion, like you said, that's for sure. I don't know if I agree that there are no ideas, because I do think that Medicare for all is an idea. And I think it's an idea worth exploring. And I think that sometimes you do get the intersection and and politicians definitely respond to that of something that is people are passionate about politically. That is also a real policy discussion. And I think because healthcare touches our daily lives and is so impactful on our pocketbooks, on our literally on life and death issues, that you have that intersection of something where people stay engaged politically about a policy issue. And so if you have anything like that where people are, it affects people's daily lives and it's policy that the government plays a very important role in, 
then yeah, it's going to be ripe for politics. Um, but I do think there are people out there trying to have a policy-driven discussion about this, but that sure is not, heck, not what this editorial was. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. This is a sincere question, not me trying to make a point. Have you seen 
very substantial commentary or proposals about how we transition from where we are today to a single-payer system. I have so many questions about what that would look like. How do we realistically get from here to there? And I think those details would matter a lot, especially for people like me who believe that we need substantial overhaul of the healthcare system and accept that we're all responsible for each other in this way, that we don't want to leave anyone behind. We don't want people dying because they can't afford to see a doctor. So so my values align with really significant change to health insurance. But I don't I don't see a path from here to a single payer system that I think makes it better and I'm just wondering if you see Democrats out there with really detailed plans about the how, not just the what. So do you mean the how of how do we open up the system or how do we pay for it or both? I mean, I'm even less concerned about how we pay for it. We pay for all kinds of things in this country that I don't understand how we pay for or why. Or we don't pay for them. We just are, we just borrow money. For or we them. borrow. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, there are, there are lots of places that dollars are going out of the United States right now that I, I'd be happy to divert to health care if it in the long run made a positive, substantial change in our country. But the actual logistics of transitioning people from all of these disparate systems into one system concern me. And the medical record keeping and the pre-approval for surgeries and just the, the details of how we get from where we are today to that system, I would I would like to better understand. I will read any long read. If you're out there listening to this conversation and you want to recommend something about those details, I, I'm open to the discussion. Well, I mean, I think that's why the conversation shifted Probably, I would say, a year ago, or I, mean, I think when the midterm elections started in earnest, you started to hear candidates say, instead of talking about single payer or whatever, and even really back in the 2016 election with Bernie and Hillary, you heard that I think that the Medicare for all came about because it was a way to explain how this would work to people. It was a way to say, we already have a government system that administers health insurance for millions of America's, Americans, and what we're going to do is open that up to everyone. I had heard about that sort of approach way back in the ACA. Like, we were having all that debate. I remember reading things where people were like, this is not complicated. Just open up Medicare for everyone. Um so, I mean, I think the system, the the structure is there. It's we already administer health insurance through the government for Americans. It would be a dramatic scaling up of that, but you know, I think people there are processes that private insurers use to switch and I'm assuming that there's there are often people who go from private insurance to Medicare and so it's not like that we don't have the ability to deal with that sort of transition. I believe that it could be done, I would like to understand how it would be done. I would like to understand the impact on the thousands of people who are employed by private insurers today and whether we are really talking about a base plan for everyone with buy-on through private carriers or we're really talking about single payer that's comprehensive. I mean, I just... I, the reason that it doesn't feel like a contest of ideas to me right now is because I never get past the talking point of, well, we should just open up the current programs we have to everyone. Cool. OK. What, what's that look like? And, and I don't I've read a lot about this and I don't know the answer. I mean, I think that so often. And, you know, that's why everybody makes fun of Nancy Pelosi for the famous quote, we got to pass them, we got to read it. But what she was trying to say is. 
you know, particularly with policy on this scale, when you're talking about the entire United States of America, we're never going to fully understand the impact of this legislation. And that's not to say we pass stuff and then worry about it afterwards. But, you know, there's just, there's, we can all sort of get together with the experts and decide this is what we think is going to happen. But the real world impact could be dramatically different. And we, you know, we talk about this with legislation all the time. That's part of the problem though, is that the system is so clunky that we can't really adapt and change it within once we passed it because, and we start to see the impacts that we had not anticipated because then we have to have this fight. And then, you know, like you said, the fight is exploited for political purposes and we don't have any stability, much less the ability to adapt and change to, um, impacts or repercussions that we didn't foresee. Like, I'll give you a corollary that is a a shot at the conservative side for this kind of thing. We've talked before about Governor Bevin in Kentucky's um, welfare to work, essentially, revival, right? That That you have to show that you're working in order to receive certain state benefits, That is the most half-baked idea I've ever heard. Everything I have seen about it says, how on earth are we going to administer this in Kentucky? How are we going to have all of the options needed to be available to show that people are working or doing the classes they're supposed to be doing or are exempt from those requirements because one of of the many reasons that you can be exempt? It's, It's just an unworkable idea, especially in a state like ours that has so many rural communities. More people in Kentucky, you know, are are not near an area that would offer the kind of employment or the kind of classes or programming that this legislation contemplates. And I think I get where you're coming from, and I don't see the how of that at all. I also don't see data that supports kind of the premise underlying that idea. But I'm kind of, that's that's really how I feel about this magic single payer idea. I think I get where you're coming from. I get the idea. The how of it, I I don't. Especially again when I think about a state like ours where healthcare in rural communities totally different ball game than in Lexington, Louisville, Northern Kentucky where I live. Right. Well, I wish the president would engage in this level of discussion about these topics rather than writing an op-ed that is intentionally divisive. And that's all this was. This was uh, kind of a, I would say a new level, but it's not for him. I mean, Mm -hmm. we just have had a reset in what our expectations are. I was thinking this morning about how I keep, for my own sanity, looking at each news cycle, trying to separate what is truly news from what is just the churn of the Trump administration. And what gets lumped into the churn keeps increasing for me because Nikki Haley's resignation as ambassador to the United Nations just struck me as part of the churn this Mm -hmm. week. It didn't even make our outline of important topics today, you know, and that's a pretty big deal. But I think our expectations just keep shifting. And this op-ed is part of those shifting expectations. And I, I sincerely hope that we can come back from this kind of language from our president about really important policy issues. You had a prayer you wanted to share to close out the show? I did. We got this wonderful message from Alexis 
This is the Celtic prayer of approach. Alexis, like many of our listeners, very conscientious. She said she's not been able to confirm that this is actually Celtic, but we'll just accept (laughs) that title. And I think this is great no matter what kind of faith background you have. And if you don't have one at all, I still think that there's something wonderful here. I honor your gods. I drink at your well. I bring an undefended heart to our meeting place. I have no cherished outcomes. I will not negotiate by withholding, and I am not subject to disappointment. May we all engage that way. Those last two lines are killer. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have a live podcast coming up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on November 17th. You can go to our Facebook page, Pantsuit Politics, and see an event there and get all the information and purchase tickets. We hope to see a lot of you live and in person in November. And until then, you can follow us on social media. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday with another episode. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.